0: Merry Christmas. You know, for many of us, the nativity story begins and ends in the New Testament. But what if we told you that Christmas is actually unwrapped in the Old Testament? Welcome to a very special Christmas edition of The Land and the Book. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer, Old Testament scholar and a man who's been a lifelong student of Israel. I'm John Geiger, really intrigued with today's Focus, Charlie. I'm looking forward to exploring this subject with you in a few minutes.
1: I am as well, John, and Merry Christmas as well to you. Thank
0: you very much. Hope you and Kath, are having a great time. Well, with that said, let's dig into our current events view for the week as we peer at what's happened in the Middle East this last week. As 2021 draws to a close, we're going to use this time to look back over the top stories out of the Middle East from the past year. Our first story has to be the ongoing impact of the global pandemic. How has the virus left its imprint on the region there in the Middle
1: East, Charlie? You know, 2021 started with the hope that the new vaccines coming available would spell the end of the pandemic. But 12 months later, uh, the Middle East, indeed the whole world, is pretty much about where it was when the year started. Now, three factors came together to blunt that original optimism. First, the vaccines themselves became polarized. Some hyped them as a magic elixir that would solve all our pandemic problems as long as everyone got vaccinated. Others panned the vaccines as a dangerous experiment using humans as guinea pigs or as part of a government plot to extend control over people's day-to-day lives. But calm and reasoned debate and discussion got pushed aside by the overblown hype and fear-driven skepticism and that was true in our country but it was also true in Israel and in much of the Middle East and the end result was that significant numbers of people refused to be vaccinated the second problem was the vaccines had limited availability while they quickly became available in countries like Israel the US and in much of Europe people in large swaths of the world including much of the Middle East couldn't get vaccinated And the unvaccinated provided a ready breeding ground for the virus to spread. And that led to the third problem, which should have been expected, but wasn't, at least early on. And that's the reality that viruses mutate. At the end of 2020, the alpha and beta variants were reported, but they were relatively minor in terms of worldwide spread. And then came the gamma version in Brazil and Mm -hmm. South America, followed by the Delta variant, which took over the world in late spring that variant made its way around the world, sparking a new round of restrictions and closures because of the increase in transmissibility. And then just about the time the world thought it was getting a handle on the Delta version, along came Omicron in late November. Now Israel responded to the different variants by closing its borders. You know, I was there in June only to have the country closed down just after I left. And then I was there again in October and we were there in November, but they closed down again less than a Mm -hmm. week after I left that time. In other countries in the Middle East, they've also struggled. Iran was hit hard by multiple waves of variants. Turkey continues to experience a steady flow of new infections and deaths. But the bottom line is that all the countries in the Middle East are continuing to deal with the impact of the pandemic. Uh, There's still some optimism that it could end soon, but people aren't as confident as they were a year ago. Well, the second story of
0: significance certainly must be the Israeli election that saw Benjamin Netanyahu replaced as prime minister by Naftali Bennett and the installation of a rather unusual coalition government. What brought about this major change?
1: Yeah, those opposition parties for years have been trying to oust Netanyahu as prime minister, but he was able to hold on to power because he was the political chess master. But over time, the number of opponents increased and Rather than competing against each other, those rival parties finally agreed to join ranks with one goal in mind, and that was removing Netanyahu and his party from power. Now, they were helped by the criminal charges lodged against Netanyahu. The image of him sitting in court was one that his political opponents and the press tried to capitalize on. In the end, Netanyahu's party still garnered the largest number of votes in the Knesset, and the conservative parties ended up with a majority of seats in the Knesset. But the leaders of several parties refused to join a Netanyahu-led coalition, and that's what opened the way for the very unusual government now in power. Naftali Bennett's party only won six seats in the Knesset, yet he's prime minister. He's a religious conservative, and yet he heads the most liberal coalition in decades. The coalition has 19 conservative members, 25 members who are in the center or left of center, and then 13 on the far left end of the political spectrum, plus four from the Islamic Ra'am party. The only thing they really have in common is their opposition to Benjamin Netanyahu and their desire to keep him from being prime minister. And yet, as shaky as the coalition is, they produced two major accomplishments in 2021. First, they remained in power for six months, which is longer than many had predicted. And second, they were able to pass a budget for both 2021 and 2022. That was the first budget approved by the Knesset in three and a half years. To their credit, those budgets have generated a sense of stability that had been lacking those last several years of Netanyahu's government.
0: You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. With 2021 drawing to a close, we're looking back over the top stories out of the Middle East with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger with story number three, America's pullout from Afghanistan and its impact on the Middle East. What were the obvious and maybe not so obvious consequences from that pullout, Charlie?
1: Well, when the U.S. pulled its forces out of Afghanistan on August 31, we ended the longest war in our country's history. The decision to pull the troops out was made in the spring, but Afghanistan fell to the Taliban before we could even get all the remaining forces and other U.S. citizens out of the country. Over the past two decades, the U.S. pumped $80 billion into the Afghan National Security Forces to train and equip 300,000 Afghanis to defend their country against the Taliban. That force melted away in a matter of days, surprising virtually everyone. Now, the obvious consequence is that Afghanistan is again being controlled by the Taliban, who have reinstituted Sharia law. And though they said they'll respect the rights of women, some of the decisions being made suggest that they're going to return to their previous policies when women were barred from access to education and other basic rights. Two other consequences might not be as immediately obvious, but they're just as significant, perhaps even more so. One is that America's reputation took a hit. Our decision to pull out, followed by the country's rapid chaotic collapse, sent a message to friend and foe alike that the U.S. will abandon its allies if the going gets tough. Push hard enough and you can dislodge the U.S. from virtually any place or any alliance. That message hasn't been lost on Iran, or on their allies in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Yemen, or even on our allies. They're all looking at the future of what's being now called a post-American Middle East. And whether or not it's true isn't the issue. That perception of reality will influence other nations in the region to make decisions they might not otherwise have made. Hmm. Uh, The second major consequence of our pullout from Afghanistan is that it has opened that country to al-Qaeda, which has always been a friend and ally of the Taliban. Afghanistan could again become the base of operation for a resurgent al-Qaeda. They'd been largely eclipsed by ISIS. But with Afghanistan now controlled by a friendly government, look for al-Qaeda to try to rebuild itself. Long term, that could allow al-Qaeda to again become a threat to the United States, here at home and abroad. Well, the final story for 2021
0: might be the reemergence of archaeology in the region and announcements of new discoveries that could shape our understanding of the region's history. What were some of the more significant announcements during this past year?
1: Well, in Egypt, the National Museum of Egyptian Culture opened in April with a parade of mummies, including 18 kings and four queens, making their way from the Egyptian museum to their new home. And work continued on the Grand Egyptian Museum. Uh, That museum is scheduled to open in the fall, and it will be the largest archeological museum in the world. In Israel, the announcements ranged from the discovery of colorful purple cloth dating back 3,000 years to the time of David, to additional discoveries on the pilgrim roadway in Jerusalem that stretched from the Pool of Siloam to the Temple Mount, including a massive 2,000-year-old building that stood right next to the Temple Mount. Archaeologists also announced the discovery of part of the wall on the eastern side of Jerusalem overlooking the Kidron Valley that dates back to the time of Jerusalem's fall to the Babylonians. In that same area, they found evidence of the earthquake that took place in the days of King Uzziah that's mentioned in both Amos and Zechariah. Uh, they also uncovered a second synagogue in Magdala from the time of Jesus. We just talked about that last week. And the debate over the exact location of New Testament Bethsaida heated up again with the announcement by those excavating the alternative site of El Arraj that they'd found evidence of a church on the site, which they believe helps identify it with the home of Andrew and Peter. Now, it was a slow year for archaeological digs in general but there was still enough taking place to whet our appetites for what is sure to come in the future. Well, that's a look at the
0: stories that have uh, marked 2021 in the Middle East region. And as a reminder, our website is there for you to help you uh, connect further with the Middle East, connect with our guests, and even uh, books that Charlie's written. You can reach us at thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. Charlie, uh, for somebody who has
1: never used our podcast yet, uh, what's it about and why should they get involved? Well, the podcast can allow someone to listen to this program or listen to it again at their convenience. Uh, They can just dial it up and listen to it. Think of it as a Christmas gift you can share
0: with someone else. Check out that podcast at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Christmas. For many of us, the nativity story begins and ends in the New Testament. But what if we told you that Christmas is actually unwrapped in the Old Testament? Welcome to a very special Christmas edition of The Land and the Book. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer, Old Testament scholar and a man who's been a lifelong student of Israel. I'm John Gager, really intrigued with today's focus. Charlie, why do we tend to shy away from this idea of finding
1: Jesus in the Old Testament, uh, John. As I would tell my students when I was teaching, the Old Testament, especially the prophets, are those pages in most people's Bibles that still have that gold gilding still on all the edges of the pages. Yeah. And I think that the reason is people are afraid to read the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament prophets, because they're not taught by their pastors. They're uncertain if they can understand it, and so they back away and and stick with those parts of the Bible that they find more familiar. But when Paul told Timothy that all Scripture is profitable, he was including the Old Testament prophets, and certainly they have a lot to teach us about Jesus. Charlie, you and I were together in Israel
0: last November, and one of the points as we were interviewing 18 different people on this idea of unwrapping Christmas in the Old Testament is that Jesus never quoted the New Testament because it didn't exist. Uh, They only quoted the Old Testament, never a sermon from the New Testament. And if Jesus saw value in the Old Testament, shouldn't we?
1: That's right. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus began with Moses and the prophets and showed the two disciples what the Old Testament had to say about him. And uh, I, I would love to have been in that Bible study, but that's what we want to do in this program is to help people understand what that part of the Bible says about Jesus, because it says a lot. Charlie, it seems to me that we actually see the very first reference to Jesus
0: back in the Garden of Eden. Paint that picture for us.
1: Yeah, you know, it's immediately after the serpent caused Adam and Eve to sin, God made an announcement. He said he'd put enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent. And he's not just talking about fear of snakes there. God promised that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head, in essence, destroy him, even though the serpent would strike the offspring's heel. Well, Satan thought he'd won when Jesus was crucified, but Jesus's resurrection was the knockout punch that will ultimately bring about Satan's destruction. And here in the very first chapters of Genesis, we see God setting that stage. Well, Genesis 32 brings
0: us to a turning point in the life of Jacob. For years, he has feared the retaliation of his brother Esau, whom Jacob cheated out of his inheritance and blessing. And then comes the uh, proverbial moment of truth, Let's listen to this dramatic reenactment. Jacob, we found your brother Esau
2: and delivered your message. Well done. Any response? Esau says to tell you
3: he's coming to meet you. He is. Him and 400
0: men. 400?
2: All right, there's no time to lose. Uh, quick, we'll divide into two groups. Uh, just people? Uh, what about the flocks? Uh, herds? Camels? Everything. If Esau attacks one group, then the other will escape.
0: Maybe we should set aside a portion of the livestock as gifts for
3: Esau. Do it.
2: Do it. Perhaps we can appease him yet. All right, let's move. Yes. Are you sure we need to do this, Jacob?
4: I'm scared. Me too. All right,
2: all right. Now, it's safer this way, Rachel. Wives and all 11 children on the far side of the Jabbok River. To me... That's peace of mind.
4: But what about you?
2: Yes. The Almighty promised he would prosper me.
4: Oh, then he will. Good. All
2: right, this is the place. We can easily walk through the water here, but not even waist high.
4: The water will be freezing. Well, it's a good thing the moon is almost full. We'll be able to see.
2: Come into my camp to to wrestle me? I have. What, all
3: night long?
2: We've been at this
3: for hours. What? Are you growing tired? What is the point of this? Who are you to ask? You're hiding yourself. I do as I please. (laughs) Say... Is your grip weakening? No, 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 it's me that has you in a hold, not the other way around. ah, Oh, my hip. What did you just do? Let me go. The dawn is breaking. I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? Jacob. Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel for you have contended with God and with men and have prevailed. Please, please tell me your name. Why is it that you ask my name? Come, sit, let me bless you. I shall call this place Peniel. I
2: have seen God face to face, yet...
3: My life has been spent.
0: Wow, what a moment in the Old Testament book of Genesis. And yet, Charlie, I think many people would say, as dramatic as that is, as awesome as that is, I'm struggling to see how could this point to Jesus? How would you respond?
1: Well, I think he's actually wrestling with the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, The text has two signposts that point to this individual being Christ. First the person who wrestled with Jacob changes Jacob's name to Israel, which means he struggles with God. So Jacob was given this new name because he struggled with God. This individual was God in human form. And then once the encounters over and the man blesses Jacob, Jacob names the spot Peniel saying, it's because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. So from the very beginning of it, uh, it's uh, obvious that this is God in human form wrestling with Jacob And that points us, we know, from the New Testament to Jesus.
0: That is really fascinating. But, Charlie, what do we take away from this unusual moment recorded in Genesis? What should we take away from it?
1: Yeah, from the very beginning of the nation in the book of Genesis, God prepared the nation for his appearance in human form. You know, whether it's here or in his appearances as the angel of the Lord, it's clear that God can appear wrapped in human form even, ultimately, in human flesh.
0: Well, there is a fascinating connection between the Old Testament character Joshua and the New Testament figure of Jesus. Even their names share a common bond, as we hear in this dramatic segment.
4: Look at him, Nun. (laughs) So helpless.
3: Uh, You better get used to it. That's life in Egypt. Slaves.
2: Even so, joy comes (laughs) wrapped in a blanket.
3: He's certainly tiny enough, Yale.
4: That he is. little cutie.
3: <laughs> what he lacks in size, he makes up for in volume.
4: <laughs> <laughs> the pride of a papa. Mm-hmm. I don't think
2: either one of us will be getting much sleep no. for a while. No. Hm. What is it, Nun?
4: You've got that look.
3: Mm. I'm not sure, Gail. About? Him. What do you mean? When I look at him, my eyes tell me he's tiny, helpless. But my heart tells me he's a conqueror, a deliverer. I don't know what it all means, Yale, but it scares me.
2: Frightens me, too.
3: Just something about him.
2: And his name, this conqueror of ours? Have you decided?
0: Joshua. He will save his people. Save? his people. Fifteen hundred years later, a carpenter who is weary, tired, and accustomed to falling asleep the moment his head hits the pillow, is strangely stirred up, unable to sleep. Pregnant. How could she? I, I loved her. I-, I thought I knew my fiancé, really. Oh, we'll always be poor, but at least we'll be together. That's what she always said. And then... And then... Mary tells me about a baby? She tries to justify it. Oh, says she's conceived by the Holy Spirit. Nothing holy about it. I mean, wouldn't the Holy Spirit want to at least share that little detail with me? What a mess. Still no point in disgracing her, being unkind, even if she hasn't exactly been kind, let alone honest with me. Uh, I'll send her away quietly. Yeah, secretly. The fewer that know the truth, the better off she'll be. Quietly. Secretly. Yeah. Quiet.
3: Quiet.
0: Joseph. Huh? Huh? Joseph. Son of David. Who's speaking to me? Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. (laughs) Why not? She's impure. She, she's been with a man. She... No. The child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Well, but that can't be. I mean, I heard her say the same thing, and yet that can't be right. She will give birth to a son. Son? And you shall name him Jesus. Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. What a moment. What a scene. By the way, I should point out that these dramatic vignettes that you're hearing right now are part of a Moody Radio Christmas special called Unwrapping Christmas in the Old Testament. You can hear the entire thing at moodyradio.org forward slash specials, moodyradio.org forward slash specials. We're exploring some of the prophecies that point to Jesus in the Old Testament on this Christmas edition of The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. Charlie, for someone wanting to take their first steps into studying these prophecies, what websites or books do you recommend?
1: Well, in terms of books, I'd recommend The Complete Book of Bible Prophecy. It's by a friend, Mark Hitchcock. It sounds big, you know, The Complete Book, but it's not large. It's very readable. Uh, it's a good guide to understanding Bible prophecy. And for a more complete study, I'd recommend the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy by Michael Redelnik. Now, I'm leery of some of the prophecy websites that are out there, but I would suggest the Friends of Israel's site, uh, and especially their podcasts, they can be found at radio.foi.org. Uh, you can also check out beholdisrael.com with Amir Sarfati. Uh, That's also an excellent place to go for information. I want to
0: play just one last dramatic excerpt for you from this special unwrapping Christmas in the Old Testament. It takes us to the night of nights when Jesus was born.
4: What's with opening the door? Something's different out there tonight. Have you noticed? Oh, of it you mention it. (laughs) Bethlehem does seem different. The whole town. Something strange is going on. It's not the Bethlehem we know, is it? We've lived here all our lives, Matt and I, and I've never sensed whatever it is that's happening.
2: First there was the
4: sky, all lit up. Brightest, whitest glow I've ever seen. And then the sounds. Glory to God. Oh, whatever it was, it was loud. <laughs> I wish we could have been a bit closer to make it all out. <laughs> Our hearing isn't what it used to be, Leon. Ah, sounded like voices. Hundreds or thousands of them.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now one thing is sure. Those shepherds we saw later running down the street, they were chasing after something important.
3: how the star is pointing
4: they were in some kind of hurry uh,
2: something strange going on tonight
4: that baby we heard crying oh. almost sounded like it was coming from old avi's cowshed
2: it almost makes you wonder if what uh, no, no never mind it, it can't be
4: Mataniah, don't hold out on me. Can't be what? I I just wonder if this could possibly be
2: what Micah wrote about. The prophet? But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will come forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His times of coming forth are from long ago. From the
4: days of eternity. Something strange going on tonight.
0: Again, excerpts from Unwrapping Christmas of the Old Testament. You can hear that entire special at moodyradio.org forward slash specials. Well, Charlie, our time is gone. But I hope this uh, has wet your appetite uh, as you listen to this conversation for digging into the Old Testament for these unusual viewings of Jesus right back in those ancient times. Been fun, Charlie. I hope you and Kathy have a Merry Christmas.
1: Thanks, John. I enjoyed uh, sharing this microphone with you again, and uh, I hope you have a wonderful Christmas as well.
0: Looking forward to Charlie's answers to your
1: questions next on The Land
0: and the Book. We're so glad you've chosen to hang out with us here at The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I love this next segment, and I know you do too, Charlie. What is it that fires you up about uh, answering these questions that come in from listeners? So many different topics, different books of the Bible. We talk about Israel, prophecy. Does it ever get old? Uh,
1: It does not. You know, the teacher in me loves it because it lets you know where people are, what their questions are, and where their interests are. And uh, when you teach in terms of someone's interests, you're hopefully driving them closer to God and to the Bible. So uh, it's like saying, as I said before, sick them to a dog. We love it. All right. We'll start with Mary's question. She wants to know, is there a book about the history of Israel that's simple? Yeah. Well, the short answer, it depends. Uh, In terms of a good book on the history of Israel, I know of a couple. In fact, let me give some titles. Uh, A Survey of Israel's History is the title by Leon Wood, and it was revised by David O'Brien. It's published by Zondervan. It's really a good history of Israel. There's a second book, A History of Israel from Conquest to Exile by John Davis and John C. Whitcomb. Uh, That one starts at the time of Joshua, but it goes through the exile. And then the one I like probably the best is called Kingdom of Priests, A History of Old Testament Israel by Gene Merrill, or Eugene Merrill. Uh, A little more detailed, but uh, just excellent research. Now, for a more modern history of Israel and the Jewish people, uh, I'd suggest Who Owns the Land by Stanley Ellison. And I was asked to do an updated and revised version. But that book focuses more on events from World War I through the early 2000s.
0: Okay, some great resources there. Thank you, Charlie. Here's a question from Keith. Is there a resource which explains the words from the Hebrew Bible that are not well translated into the English Bible?
1: Uh, There aren't as many helpful works that explain words from the Hebrew Bible as there are works focused on the Greek of the New Testament, but there are some that I believe you might want to check out. And I think you can find copies available online or at least at a reasonable price. The first one Theological Word Book of the Old Testament. It's by R. Laird Harris, Gleason Archer, and Bruce Waltke. It's a two volume work and it was published back in 1980 by Moody Publishers, and it probably comes closest to what you want. Uh, It covers many, though not all, the words found in the Old Testament, and it goes through from A to Z, or in Hebrew, from Aleph to Tav. Uh, There's also the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis. That's a mouthful of words, Uh, but it's a five-volume work organized by English words, which makes it somewhat easy to use. It does cover more than just Hebrew words, though. It also has uh, the theology of the different books of the Old Testament, a section on offerings and sacrifices, and even a section on the different Hebrew particles like adverbs and prepositions and conjunctions. Uh, The third book, uh, this is for the serious ones, Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament. It's a 15 volume series. It's very scholarly, very complete and very expensive, but it provides extensive research and analysis on every major word group in both Hebrew and Aramaic. Uh, so you may have to go back and listen to all those titles, mm. uh, but there's several out there that can help you and I'd encourage you to check them out.
0: You're listening to the land and the book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. Your questions always welcome at the land and the book at moody.edu. Brad says our church is in the process of calling a new pastor. In terms of eschatology, he sees himself as being somewhere between amillennialism and historic premillennialism. Most people in the congregation, including the elders, say, you know, we need to major on the majors, not on the minors. Of course, they see eschatology as something minor. I'm curious as to whether you see any specific danger in holding to something other than a premillennial view. Is it a warning sign to you? of one's view of biblical interpretation? How high do you put it on your list of the majors and minors of your Christian faith?
1: Okay, I'll start this way, John. I don't see eschatology as being a minor theological point. Uh, Jesus spoke as much about the future as he did about the Holy Spirit, and we certainly wouldn't consider the Holy Spirit a minor theological issue. Now, here are the unintended consequences that I see coming from that kind of a shift. Uh, First, there could be far less teaching from the prophetic portions of the Bible, you know, both the Old Testament prophets along with books like First and Second Thessalonians and Revelation. And yet, those are crucial parts of God's Word. Uh, second, there could be ultimately less support for Israel or for the part Israel plays in God's program for the future. Amillennialism tends to lead to replacement theology, which assumes the church has replaced Israel as God's chosen people. And that can in turn lead to anti-Semitism. One last point. Much of the dismissal on the importance of eschatology is driven by seminary professors who see such an approach as being anti-intellectual. And sadly, over the years, it's been the seminaries that have led major denominations into liberalism Mm. by producing pastors for those churches. Now, here are some of the fences that can help keep the church from drifting. Make sure any new pastor is crystal clear on the inspiration and authority of Scripture. Will he preach the whole word of God, or are there portions he will be afraid to tackle? And make sure he's supportive of Israel and sees a future for the Jewish people in God's overall program for the world. Those fences can at least help keep that pastor from going too far astray. Here's a question from Sean. In my Bible, he
0: says, I see Jesus described as a cornerstone and a capstone. Are these the same thing, and what's the difference if not?
1: Uh, Yes. Uh, Both Matthew 22 and Mark 12 are quoting from Psalm 118 when they use that phrase. Uh, The two Hebrew words in Psalm 118 uh, are translated capstone or cornerstone, and they're actually the Hebrew words rosh pina, which literally means head corner. Now, in this Messianic Psalm, the writer was saying the stone spurned by the builders as unsuitable or unworthy will become either the stone on which the entire building is centered, that is the chief cornerstone, or B, the stone placed at the very top of the structure, signifying its completion and dedication, the chief capstone. And the problem is that both concepts are found in the Bible. In Isaiah 28, God promised to lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. In that passage, he uses the word pina, though he doesn't use the word chief, rosh. But in Zechariah 4, 7, God promises to overcome all obstacles and rebuild the temple of Zerubbabel. And he says, they'll bring out the capstone to shouts of grace, grace to it. Well, the capstone is literally the stone, the head one. There he doesn't use pina, but he uses the word roche. So the problem is you can find it used both ways, uh, at least each of the words used in both contexts, but differently. Now, six times in the New Testament, the writers quote from Psalm 118, and they apply the passage to Jesus. Three of the times, including the two passages that uh, you had written about, uh, Jesus quotes Psalm 118 to condemn the religious leaders who were questioning his authority. And the Greek phrase used in those passages is a literal translation of the Hebrew. It reads "head of the corner." It has the idea of the chief or main angle, likely the initial block that determined the ultimate direction and shape the building would take. So, as a result, I think the best translation of "rosh pina" would seem to be "chief cornerstone," but. I've got to end this way and say I can't press that too far because Chief Capstone could still be a valid translation. Charlie, here's a follow-up
0: question from Sean. He says, I heard someone say that when the Jews were building the temple, one of the last stones to complete the temple was a cornerstone that was of a smaller size than the majority of the others. However, the builders, who were supposed to know everything, threw the cornerstone away in the trash dump because it was too small to be part of the temple. Then towards the end of the project, construction came to a halt because they could not find the last piece. Later, it was found in the trash dump. Now, I heard this story was a common Jewish saying or idiom that every Jew seemed to know. So when Jesus confronted the priests and Pharisees, everybody knew exactly what he meant in saying that those who rejected Jesus, the ultimate capstone, were fools. I have never read this, heard this before, so I wanted to see if there is truth to that story in Jewish stories about the building of the temple. Your thoughts.
1: Yeah, I'm afraid the story is a wonderful illustration that has absolutely no basis in historical reality. Uh, I know of no such story from the Old Testament or the New Testament or Josephus or any other ancient historical source. Uh, Like many stories that circulate, this one likely started as a fictitious and harmless illustration that's taken on a life of its own, you know, something like an urban legend or urban myth uh, from the first century. Okay.
0: Here's one from David who really enjoyed his trip to Israel and now finds himself riveted to the Old Testament. Question, do you have a particular translation of the Bible that you would recommend when digging into and studying the Old Testament?
1: Yeah, and I'm not sure if there's any one translation I consider the best. I like the New American Standard Bible because it tends to be a more literal translation, though that can sometimes make it a little more awkward to read. Uh, The New International Version, the English Standard Version, the Christian Standard Version, the New King James Version, they're all good translations. In fact, sometimes having two or three translations open at the same time can help as you're trying to study a passage. Now, I'd like to suggest just a few other things I found helpful. Consider buying a Bible with notes that can help you with historical and archaeological background. I like the notes in my 1984 edition of the NIV Study Bible. I also have the Archaeological Study Bible, which provides some excellent material. Second, I'd encourage you to have a Bible Atlas and a good Bible commentary handy. Uh, Something like uh, the Moody Atlas of the Bible, I have it right on my shelf in front of me, and a Bible commentary like the one-volume Moody Bible commentary or or the two-volume Bible knowledge commentary are very helpful. And finally, there are some online resources, like the 1939 edition of the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, It's available free online. Just Google that, and you'll get some terrific information from a five-volume series that's fantastic. Thanks, Charlie. And if you're enjoying The Land and the Book, I bet you've
0: got a friend who would like it, too. They can always catch the podcast at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Charlie Dyer is next with his devotional. Hi, welcome back to The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Gager, confessing that I have a hard time focusing on Christmas to the point where it brings a sense of wonder. I think, Charlie, sometimes we're, we're so exposed to the message of the Christmas story that we lose that wonder, which makes me grateful for the series that you're
1: doing at this devotional time. Yeah, thanks, John. Yeah, as I drive down my street and see the guy with his inflatable M&Ms, it just somehow takes away from the Christmas season. So (laughs) today, it's nice to get to Bethlehem.
0: Look forward to that commentary. We'll get right to it. First, we're going to listen to this testimony from someone who's been to the Holy Land and now sees life just a bit differently.
2: Hi, my name is Suzanne Streisack from Chicago, and I just wanted to say that the power of prayer was the most remarkable thing. We were prepped before we left Chicago to to pray, and we honestly did it each night. And we prayed for everything from the bus driver to good weather, and God answered all those prayers and um, just gave us a joy you know, of seeing the sights and, and the new friends that we met and beautiful um, time together, it was every detail taken care of. So the answer to prayer was the most beautiful experience.
4: Hi, my name is Alan Streisick from Chicago, Illinois. One of the things that really surprised me was when we were at the cenacle in the upper room, and Charlie pointed out the statue that was in there. It said, not by power or might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Hearing those words from Zechariah and actually seeing it in the same place as the Last Supper had been held, seeing it in the same place as the Pentecost event, it was just a very, very powerful thing. I would had been to the room once before, but it was really such a surprise, and it really
0: moved me a lot. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you. Land in the book. Great perspective in that Holy Land experience. Well, what better subject to consider in Charlie's devotional today than that birth in Bethlehem that took place
1: 2,000 years ago? We're headed for Micah chapter 5. Charlie? Uh, thanks, John. Bethlehem. Along with Jerusalem and Nazareth, it remains a key stop for most pilgrims to the Holy Land. And this time of year, that's even more true. Tourists pack Manger Square, the Church of the Nativity, and the scores of stores that line the streets of this historic town. But there was a time when Bethlehem was little more than a postage stamp-sized hamlet that didn't even show up on the road maps of the day. Of course, the time I'm talking about was nearly 3,500 years ago, but when Israel first came into the land, Bethlehem wasn't even important enough to be listed as a town among the clans of Judah. It's true. Joshua 15 describes the land allotted to the tribe of Judah, clan by clan. Joshua identifies the boundaries of Judah's territory, and then he lists the key towns and villages within that area. In verses 48 to 60, he lists 38 towns in the hill country of Judah, but Bethlehem isn't included in the list. It was too small, too insignificant to be listed. It's not that the town was totally unknown. After all, Genesis 35 states that Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrat, that is, Bethlehem. The place was known, but it just wasn't significant enough to be named with the other more strategic towns and villages in the region settled by the clans of Judah. So how did such an unimportant hamlet become so significant? Certainly the love story of Ruth and Boaz must have helped. Even more significant was the fact that Bethlehem was the hometown of King David. For sure, that gave the town a great deal of importance and respect. But even that can't fully explain Bethlehem's later significance. To understand why Bethlehem is so important, we need to turn once again to the words of Micah the prophet. The most well-known message spoken by that prophet is Micah 5-2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity." If you look carefully at those words, you can actually see two key points Micah was emphasizing. First, he looks at the city, Bethlehem Ephrata. Bethlehem means house of bread, and Ephrata comes from a word meaning fruitful. Bethlehem was a pleasant enough place, a place known for its bounty and fruitfulness, but a place otherwise indistinguishable from other places in the land that were also productive and fruitful. Micah reminds his readers that the town was Too little to be among the clans of Judah. It was so insignificant, it didn't even get included in the list of towns divided up among those clans in Joshua 15. Bethlehem had nothing in and of itself that made it special. And that's when Micah added his second point of emphasis as he turned from the city to the sovereign. And in doing so, he made it very clear that the words he's sharing are the words of God himself. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Bethlehem was significant because God chose it to be the birthplace of his Messiah. David and his son Solomon were the only two kings from his line to rule over all Israel. Following Solomon's death, the kingdom divided in two. Solomon's son Rehoboam only ruled over Judah, not over all Israel. But Micah announced that a new king a new sovereign born in Bethlehem, just as his ancestor David will arise and this new king will again rule over a united kingdom of Israel. But who is this sovereign? Micah's explanation must have had his listeners scratching their heads. This king to be born in Bethlehem was no ordinary man. His origins are from long ago, from the days of eternity. What could this mean? Micah actually helps supply the answer in the very last verse of his book. There, he announces God's future blessing for Israel and says, God made a pledge on oath to our forefathers, that is to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from the days of old. The English words, days of old, are the Hebrew words, mimei kedim, from ancient days. The word kedem means ancient or old, and in Micah 7, 20, it's used to describe God's promises to the patriarchs 1,300 years earlier. Now, if you were looking for a word to describe something that took place 1,300 years ago, ancient would be a pretty good word, wouldn't it? Why is this important, though? Because Micah uses the same word in 5.2. This child to be born already existed, mekedem from ancient times. But then Micah adds a second phrase. This child to be born is from days of olam, days of eternity. If Kedem refers to something ancient, olam was something even older. He was around long before these promises were made to Abraham. Micah is saying a child will be born, but this child existed long before his birth in Bethlehem, from the days of eternity. Those words must have seemed like an enigma to the people of his day. But from our vantage point, we can see that God was pointing to the Incarnation, that point in history when the eternal Son of God took on himself human flesh to be born in a manger in Bethlehem. God chose the city of Bethlehem as the stage to announce good news of great joy, which shall be for all the peoples on that first Christmas night. The child born in a stable that night had already existed from days of eternity past. He was and is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. But what present might God have wrapped up in Micah 5-2 for us this Christmas season? Perhaps it's this, nothing is insignificant if it's part of God's eternal plan. Bethlehem might have seemed too insignificant to be listed among the cities assigned to the clans of Judah. But God chose this village to be the hometown of King David and the hometown of the one who was even greater than David, whose goings forth are from days of eternity. Whatever your background, whatever your limitations or weaknesses or failures or insecurities, you have significance if you've entered into a personal relationship with the God of the universe through faith in his Son. First John 4.10 describes it this way, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. If you've never put your trust in Christ, I can't think of a better gift to receive this Christmas than the gift of forgiveness and eternal life and the love of an eternal heavenly father. The gift has already been purchased. It's just waiting for you to receive it. And if you'd like
0: to receive the gift of eternal life that Charlie is talking about here, but you don't really know what next step to take. Why not talk with a friend now at 888 Need Him. 888 Need Him. There's no cost, no pressure, no obligation. What better gift could you think about right now than the gift of eternal life? 888 Need Him. I'm John Gager saying thanks for being a part of today's edition of The Land and The Book. Hear it all again at our website, The Land and The Book. Dot o-r-g the land and the book is a production of moody radio a ministry of moody bible institute